Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really nice to see you. 1 Samuel chapter 22 is where we're at this morning in our Bibles. Now, we're going to return, Lord willing, to our studies um, in 2 Timothy next week. But um, for other reasons, we're here at this, at this text. 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to read just the first two verses. And if you would, just have a look at them. And I'm just going to say a couple of things. Um, so almost everyone knows the first question you would ask when you go to a text, any text, is what was the intended message to the original audience? And that's, that's basic hermeneutics, interpretation, whatever you would like to call it. But not everybody knows that you're not finished until you ask this question, and the question is this. What difference does the life, death, resurrection of Jesus make in how we understand these verses? And the lion's share of this sermon will try to answer those two questions from the Bible, and then the latter part will be the actual interpretation. And, and I think as we move along, um, it'll become clear and I'm going to need God's help to do it. So nothing new there. So let's, let's pray. And actually, let's read the text, then pray. So verse 1, David left, left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt, or discontented, gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. And there we have the very beginnings of, of uh, David's rule. Not there yet, but this is the people that will be with him. So let, let's pray together. Just a, a line from him, um, Jesus said, If I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. So, Father, please then be my strength and be the strength of the church before you now. And please, um, as we just saying, may your grace abound um, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So it's been often said that we, we live out the story we we most believe is true about ourselves, okay? We, we live out the story we believe is most true about ourselves. So just, for example, take everyday life. Our sleeping, our eating, our going to work, school, serving, gains, losses, hopes, and dreams, uh, family, marriage, singleness, life dynamics, all, you know, the walk around life, if you would. Um, we live out the story that we most believe is true about ourselves. The, the Bible, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs, a person, as a person thinks in their heart, so they are. So again, we live out the story we believe is most true about ourselves. So if we believe the story of our life is solely dependent on us, 
and therefore about yourself and your effort and not God and his grace in Christ, the fundamental way we will live life will be essentially through ourselves and our effort. In a, in a sentence, think of it like this. The lens by which you view all of your life will be through yourself and your story, which if you're a Christian, that can very quickly turn Christianity into like a commodity, a product. And then you can turn people to that same end. And we can use people like a personal prop or a personal product for us to use. So the person still may say, Jesus, help me. Okay. But for far less motives. Two examples. One, we learned this in our uh, Wednesday, night, Wednesday night men's study about Saul and one Samuel. He's Israel's first king. And we learned about the difference between contrition and attrition and repentance. So contrition is real repentance. It's a deep sadness of heart that you have offended and sinned against God. That's real repentance. Attrition is you have remorse, but only because you're afraid of what you'll lose or you're afraid that you'll be punished. So that's not real repentance. So King Saul was very sorry, not because he sinned against God, but for fear of punishment and fear of, of losing the kingship. And in some cases of losing face. So Saul was repentant, repentant, but he was viewing repentance only through the lens of himself. Our second example is in Acts 17. Paul um, is preaching to the most intelligent people in the world at that time in Athens. And he says to them in a sermon... The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life, breath, and everything else. So if you were a pagan listening to that, if you were an intelligent pagan listening to that, you would say, Paul, wait a minute, that's wrong. You see, Paul, we do stuff for the gods and then the gods do stuff for us. That's how it works. We, we scratch each other's back. And so we want, to, we want to appease them. And if we appease them, then they'll do the stuff we ask. Which was viewing the gods, if you would, through their own lens. And Paul's like, no, God needs nothing from us. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And the Greek word there is pos. Every part of life that you need for life comes from God as a gift. So there you are. You, you, we live out the story we believe is most true about ourselves. And, you know, thinking about that pagan view in Acts 17, that fits almost perfectly into the narrative of our culture, which lends itself towards self and self-help, and if you would, a dramatic oversimplification of life. And if that gets into our head as Christians, for example, as we approach the Bible, rather than looking for Christ in all the scriptures, we develop a tendency to come to the Bible only, you know, looking for how to become better people or looking only to solve our problems. Those aren't bad things. Wanting to become better people and wanting to solve our problems, that's good. But that's not the, the final message of the Bible. And sometimes the intentions in those two things can be off. But here's the thing, the most practical thing that can happen to us as we study the Bible 
is that it would cause us to love the Lord Jesus Christ more and be increasingly astonished by his grace and his work on the cross, which will either bring us to our knees in worship and produce the real change, the real and lasting change in our lives. Therefore, the study of the Bible, and if you have your notes, you can see this in the back of the bulletin folder, worship folder, excuse me, is the study of, of the Bible or biblical theology. Okay, that's a very important word. We're going to get to the definition in a minute. But when I say biblical the- theology, theology, what I'm trying to say is the study of the Bible is not centered around us. It's centered around Christ. Listen to Nancy Guthrie. This is what she said on one occasion. One of the discussion leaders at the end of my talk on Genesis came to me. She was an older godly woman and sat down by me and she said to me, how come I've never seen, I've never been taught this before? Seen Christ in all the scriptures and you can't, complete the text, any text, until you've answered the question of the, on the death, resurrection, or life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. How come I've never seen this before, or taught this before? She had tears in her eyes because she was beginning to recognize that as many years as she had studied, spent studying the Bible, she had never seen how the story of the Bible fits together and how it's all centered on the person and work of Christ. In other words, as they were going through their paces in Genesis, for the first time she was seeing Christ in Genesis and she was adoring Christ in new ways that she never had before. So it wasn't just, you know, read Genesis, hey, do that and and don't do that. But she was seeing Christ, if you would, concealed and then revealed, as Augustine said, even in the book of Genesis. So for the first time in Genesis 1, she began to see that Jesus Christ was the light of creation. The light who was there before he said, let there be light, and there was light. And for the first time, she was seeing in Genesis 3 that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that offspring, that seed, would be Jesus. And in the story of Noah, Genesis 6, she was seeing that the ark shows us a picture of who Jesus is. And as we hide in him, we have safety from the justifiable judgment of God on our lives. She looked at the story of Abraham and taking his son Isaac up to the mountain to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. And she saw in that, if you would, the shadow of Jesus or the technical word would be typology or type. And how God the Father's most precious son, his only son, walked up the hill. And offered for us, on our behalf, the once and for all perfect sacrifice for sin. And in the story of Joseph, Genesis 37, how this person, Joseph, became the one person in the whole world at that time that people had to come to in order to find bread. And in that sense, Joseph was a savior of the world. You couldn't eat bread if you didn't come to Joseph. And so, yes, Jesus is the bread of life, but it's even more than that. Because Joseph, in one day, was you know, in prison as good as dead, and then he's at the right hand of Pharaoh. And that same idea, we have Jesus Christ actually dead, and then risen, and at the right hand of God. And so Mrs. Gunthrie says, the dear woman was weeping, having heard something like this, weeping over those lost years of studying the Bible, and her words, this is her words, not mine, studying the Bible in lesser ways. Okay, not exactly wrong ways, but lesser ways. And maybe, maybe for some branches, you know, sub-Christian ways. So when we come to a verse like this we've read, we, we, we center ourselves on the person and work of Christ for that matter, you know, because no matter 
where we find ourselves in the scriptures. This is, this is what I'm saying. We have not answered the question at all until we find Christ and find the difference that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes. And that takes us right to our first point, the big questions. And, and what are they? Well, here they are. Is, is what I said right? Is this the way? And is this new? Okay, is it right that seeing Jesus in all the scriptures thing, is, is this the way and is this new? Well, it, I'm going to say from the Bible, it is right, it is the way, and it's not new. It's actually very old, and here's why. Because all three of those questions have been answered by the only one who could. And he is the most trusted person in the entire universe, and his name is Jesus. So when you really, for example, take the words of Jesus to heart in Luke 24, remember he's on the road to Emmaus, you know the story, it's after his resurrection, before his ascension, he appears to those two disheartened fellows, and they're so distressed by the fact that it appeared that this Jesus thing was all done, Jesus was dead, but he wasn't. And he said to them, and this is what he said on the road, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, he's saying to them, you should have known. You should have known this. If you've known your Old Testament, the prophets, you should have known. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer before being glorified? So Jesus is saying, if you really understood the scripture, i.e. the Old Testament at that time, you would have known this. And then he continues, then beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, Jesus explained all things concerning himself. Later on, after they had a nice meal, Luke writes, then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Capital S, okay, that would be their Old Testament scriptures. And he told them, Jesus, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. The, loved ones, that is a thesis statement, if you would, of the entire Old Testament. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. So Jesus will say the same thing that I just said to you, and you can do this for homework, to the, you know, the high holy religious expert Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And essentially Jesus said, you should have known this, this salvation thing. And Jesus will say the same thing to the religious Jews in John chapter 5 who were persecuting Jesus for the things that he was saying. And loved ones, once... Jesus in all the scriptures really begins to inhabit your Bible study or your thinking. Not only do you know, not only do we wish we could have heard the whole talk that Jesus gave in Luke 24, but you also begin to think, okay, in the book of Genesis, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, in 1 Samuel 22, what might Jesus have said on the road that day and pointed to and said, for example, in the verses before us, this is overwhelmingly about me. And here's why it's about me. You see, there's all the difference in the world, leaving people, leaving their Bible studies, leaving a sermon, weighed down by what we must do, or puffed up thinking that we've fully done it, than leaving with a sense of wonder of who Jesus is, and the joy of what he's done, and the lasting effect on what he's done, walking out of here with Jesus as our only boast. In Jesus Christ, we have the record of his obedience, his perfect obedience is ours, and we have promise 
for obedience, growing in sanctification. So you come to a text like this, and I show you David, and I show you yourself, and you know, maybe a few stories about me. Here's, here's the truth. You, you, you can meet David and not be changed. You can meet me and not be changed. You, you, can, you can try harder and not be changed. But you cannot meet the risen Christ and stay the same. It's what the, disciples, the apostles called or said when, when they said, we preach Christ. That was the thesis statement of all their sermons, their apostolic authoritative sermons. So the big question, is it, is, it, is it a good thing? Is it a real thing? Is it a new thing? Is it the right thing? Yes. Who said Jesus? Okay, then the second question is biblical theology. Okay, so I've mentioned biblical theology, and, and, and um, let me just turn the page here. Thank you. Let's try to understand what it actually is. And here, I think, is a good definition of biblical theology. Biblical theology is understanding the Bible in a way that even though the Bible is made up of, of all kinds of literature, it was written over 1,500 years, 40 human authors, lots of different books, the Bible is really telling one unified, connected story about what God has done and is doing and, and will do in the world through Christ. Again, I'll say that again. Okay, biblical theology, even though the Bible is made up of different kinds of, of literature, there's, there's poems, there's history, and so on. It was written over 1,500 years by 40 human authors, but it's really telling one unified connected story about what God has done and is doing and will do in the world through Christ. And what happens is, if you don't see the Bible as one unified connected story, then the bits and pieces of historical narratives like we have here in 1 Samuel, they, get, they begin to get whittled down as separate stories standing on their own. You know, you could do things like life in the cave. And try, try super hard to be, be like the person in the story. If, if we think they're good. And sometimes, you know, we can do what the Jewish people did in the time of the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote Romans 1, he said in Romans 4, you know, Abraham and David, they were your poster boys. But they were wicked men. They were wicked men. And so what happened over time, the Jewish people made Abraham and David just like perfect. And Paul's like, don't do that. So we can make them good and we can kind of like because we're a jumble of mixed motives, we can say, put our nature in their nature. Or, you know, life's really hard, you're stuck in a cave, here's how to get out of the cave. I, I think they're called like faith lef- lessons or, or uh, life lessons. But, what if they're not there? And what if you or me is imposing ourselves on to the text? Like, I, I did listen to one short sermon and it was, Life in the cave. And one of the things is when you're in a cave, don't be alone. <laughs> okay? Get it? I don't know how, you know, I wouldn't try to get out of the cave. <laughs> it would be. Anyway, biblical theology changes all that and dramatically recognizes the Bible has a number of central themes all through it. And God, by his spirit, has written into his book a number of central themes that actually run through the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And what they do is they serve to communicate a complete, consistent message about the person and work of Christ, right? Because here's what I'm trying to say. All 
themes in the scriptures, including the themes in the Old Testament. They find their ultimate fulfillment, their ultimate meaning, their ultimate interpretation in Jesus Christ. So, so here are some of the themes. We think of things like blessing and curse, king and kingdom, like sacrifice, like garden and wilderness, like clean and unclean, like light and darkness, like offspring, like slave and free. I can remember when I was a kid a long time ago, the blessing and curse sermon from Deuteronomy 28. And basically, it's like, if you want the blessing, then do this. And if you want to be cursed, do this. They never took me to Jesus and told me how he completed all that stuff. So biblical theology means when you come to a place in the Bible, for example, okay, you begin your Bible reading January 1, praise the Lord. And depending on the plan, it's February and you're, you know, you are like in Leviticus and Numbers and you're like, oh no, (laughs) right? Oh no. But this is what biblical theology says. It says, okay, let's think about this. Think about how much time and ink was spilled by the author, say in Numbers or Leviticus, on the details of the tabernacle. And then the details of the temple. So there's stuff about the materials, how it was constructed, who constructed it, what to do when it's done, what not to do when it's done, all the bits and pieces of detail. You, you, you might be tempted to think, okay, listen, you know, I can't get my son to make his bed, <laughs> and I can't get my spouse to wash the dishes, and you're dragging me through the temple. <laughs> like, hey, how can that help me? <laughs> no, those things are important. I know they are. But your your lens is just not good. Instead, we think, okay, this must be very important to the person who wrote it and the Holy Spirit who inspired it. So we submit to it and we begin to think about the tabernacle and the temple theme. And so let's just just do that. So you go back way back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And what we have on earth is the very first sanctuary. And Adam was a kind of priest who, who worked to keep it. Just like the priests we read of in the book of Numbers would do. They would keep the temple. They would keep the sanctuary. And then we remember in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, the the glory of God, the fiery glory of God came down to the most holy places of the tabernacle. And that was the presence of God, the visible presence of God. And then later on, you read in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, fire from heaven, right? That's the temple that was finally built. And the fire from heaven consumed the sacrifice. And the glory of God came down in that temple dedication by Solomon. And then centuries after, the glory of God leaves the temple. Remember in Ezekiel 10, centuries and centuries of God being patient with his people, saying, come on, repent, come on, repent. They will not. And he takes the glory and removes it. But thank God in the same book, Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel's given a vision of the glory returning to the temple. And even in that second temple, remember we learned that in our studies this summer, even in that second temple rebuild, there's no mention of the fiery glory of God returning to the rebuild. But this is what we're told in Malachi chapter 3, that the Lord will come suddenly to his temple. One of the last things we read, and then you have 400 years of silence. And enter Jesus Christ. He appears. And John's gospel says the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And then you go to Acts 2 when fire came down after the ascension. It came down into the place. Not on a temple, not in a temple, but now on people. Fiery tongues on their head. Believers gathered at Pentecost, just like Jesus said to do. 
And then later, Stephen, right before his death, the very first Christian martyr, he says, Acts chapter 7, verse 48, the truth is that God no longer dwells in temples made with hands. No more no more holy places, only holy people. And we see how this theme started way back in the book of Numbers, and we almost gave up and said, you know what, I'm just going to go to the Gospels. No, this theme has its full, complete interpretation in the person of Christ because now it's not about a building. And now it's not about the Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies, so holy that you could only go there once a year and you had to be a high priest. Even there, there's lots of risk. But now it's about Jesus Christ and his vicarious substitutionary death on the cross and now the dwelling place of God is in believers. In believers. Consequently, Peter and Paul tell, writing about the church as the church being a spiritual house and that we are living stones being built into a temple in which God will dwell. And then 365 times Paul says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's what we are. Finally, in Revelation 21, so we started in Genesis, worked our way here. In Revelation 21, we read of a loud voice from the throne and it says, Now the dwelling place of God is with people. So that's a bit more than being in people, isn't it? There's a nuance there. Now the dwelling place of God is with people. And he will be their God. And they will be his people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And you see, it is there in that fulfillment of that theme, which began way back in the Bible, finds its complete and deepest, fullest, most truthful, you know, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth meaning. One unified, connected story about what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And everything about Jesus finds its high point at the cross in his resurrection. And loved ones, if, if you take that out of our biblical interpretation equation, then, then what you will have is what I tell you probably too often. Just moral lessons, moral how-tos, you know, moving the hand of God in your life sermons, but they'll be crossless and they'll be Christless and they will not depend on the grace of God in Jesus. And I promise you, our flesh, our flesh, our fallen nature hates that. Our flesh does not want to depend on the grace of God in Jesus. And so the more we become familiar with this, The more we're in our Bibles, instinctively seeing these things, we can trace the line all the way back to Jesus Christ. And so so that's our second point, biblical theology. I'm going to skip that and I'm going to get right to our third point because I think it's probably important. Or is it? Yes. Nope. You know what? I'm not going to skip it. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. What what I was trying to say, what I was going to skip is, Biblical theology has a partner, and it's probably the way most of us are used to studying our Bible, and it's called systematic theology. And and systematic systematic theology basically says, okay, we're going to take a topic, and we're going to systematically work through the whole Bible and see what the whole Bible says about that topic. So, you know, topical studies, topical sermons, which I'm not saying are bad, but I'm just saying this is what systematic theology does. And so you have an exhausted summary. So what you do is you get out your, your um, concordance online, get to work, and, and you find out, for example, faith. And you find all the references of the Bible about faith, and you, and you get to work. 
But I want to say that's far less than what the Bible gives. And it's a lesser way to study the Bible because there is a temptation that all you could be trying to do is find something to navigate life with. A little principle here, a little, a little help here. And again, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's a far lesser way to understand the Bible. The Bible is bigger and it presents to us the reality of the world to come. You know, living in the now in light of the world to come instead of just living for the now. Because in, in topical, the temptation is just find me something for now. And maybe the most important difference between biblical theology and, and systematic theology is that no matter what the theme of the Bible we're talking about in biblical theology, it's always going to land on Christ. It's always going to arrive in the same place, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for its complete and final answer. And again, that's what the apostles meant when Paul says it and John says it. We preach Christ, Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 or 2. We proclaim to you, that was 1 John 1. So we always land on him, the apostles say. The, the foundation of our, or the, 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 the cornerstone, and found, cornerstone is Jesus, but the foundation of the church. So, let me just give one example. Maybe the, the best post-sin scene in the Bible is Genesis 3, and it's the fall. And the, it gives us, in Genesis 3.15, really a thesis statement of every other thing that comes after till the very end of the Bible. So when you have a thesis statement, it's a strong main idea in a, in a way that covers the rest of what is written. And when you look at Genesis 3.15, it's the proto-evangel. It contains the very first promise from God of redemption in the Bible. And, the, and Christ is, if you would, shadowed in there. The, the thesis statement of the Bible there is essentially everyone needs God to rescue them from the very judgment of God they have brought on themselves. I mean, that is the story of the Bible. Everyone needs God to rescue them from the very judgment of God they have brought upon themselves. In other words, everybody needs grace. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so we see how those themes develop, you know, beginning in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, and through the historical books, and prophets, and so on. People are sinners. The best of men and women are women at best. People need to be rescued from the very judgment of God that they have brought upon themselves. <clears throat> how is that going to happen? It's going to happen in the incarnation, in the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's how God does his rescue. In other words, every answer, every final interpretation is the same place, Jesus. And you're going to always find then that every theme will be resolved in some way by either what he's done or what is coming. And do you know what I mean by that? The, the new heaven and the new earth? Because in this life, we are going to have some battles when we will lose. We will lose. We will lose. But in heaven... Final consummation, it's a win forever and ever world without end because of Jesus. So biblical theology, and we're going to go to the next point here. Biblical theology makes Bible study Christ-centered and not me-centered, not even sin-centered, or even personal righteousness-centered. It'll speak to those things, but those things will not be a solution. Takes us to our third Point. Okay, the big question answered by Jesus. Biblical theology centered on Jesus. Original message, why begin there? So, okay, so now we're going to get to the text. 
And the very first thing we said at the beginning was, okay, when you go to the Bible, you say, you, what was the intended message to the original audience? Old or New Testament, doesn't matter. Okay, what was the intended message? Well, let's just try to do that. The, the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were originally one book. In the Hebrew Bible, it's under Samuel. So there's not one and two, there's just Samuel. And the book was completed around 550 B.C. And that was during the time of the Babylonian exile. Okay? And during their exile, the people of God were surrounded by a people. And they were surrounded by a culture and a way of life that knew very little. If you, your Bible still open, verse 1 of, tw- of chapter 22, they knew very little of hiding in a cave for fear of life. They were living in a culture that knew very little about debt and distress or discontentment. I mean, yeah, there were people on the low end of the social order in Babylon, but, but on the high end, it was, you know, to the nines life. Babylon was at the peak of its power at this time. And the people of God in the time of, of Samuel, as in the time of their exile, they were in deep transition. And so the book of Samuel is a book of transitions. Let me just give you this. So the very first transition is you have a bad priest in Eli, and you can begin at the beginning of 1 Samuel and find this out. You have a bad priest in Eli and his sons, and they transition from this bad priest to a good prophet in Samuel. Samuel was a righteous judge and prophet, and he anointed kings. And then you have another transition. You have a transition from no king to Saul. Remember the people said, 1 Samuel 8, 5, we want a king like the other nations. And unfortunately, that's exactly what they got in Saul. And so you had that transition. And finally, there's this really slow transition, 42 years of Saul's reign. And now God chooses a king. And his name is David, 1 Samuel 13, 14. And he establishes him as king. Now, you got to think with me. The writers, which were probably Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, I mean... Picking up after Samuel's death, the two prophets there. And all this, you have a people in exile. That's the original audience. And what he's saying to them is, hey, remember your history. Don't, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Uh, don't, don't do the external thing all the time. Life in Babylon is not the last place for God's people. Like David here, the writer shows us how desperate you are. And David was truly desperate. But God's not done. Yeah, you're being chased by Saul, running from place to place, and and he ends up in a cave. Now here, listen, verse 1, he's in a cave, and we find out what David says to God in the cave in Psalm 142. So he's crying out to God in the cave, and David says, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Okay, get that too strong for me. And this is God's answer. First, now look at your Bible. He sends them his family. And if you know anything about David's family, they were, they were pretty dysfunctional. There was a lot of rivalry, a lot of jealousy of David. So that's God's first answer. And then God, verse 2, sends 400 people who, at least on the surface, were not the cream of the crop, right? Distressed, in debt, or disconnected. I was thinking that I don't think in, in elementary school I ever got picked first. Like, you know, pick your teams. I'm pretty sure I never got picked first. I'm pretty sure I got picked last a lot. But, you know, these guys would not get picked first. They were in distress. Those who were in a desperate state because of the demands of their master. They were in debt. Everyone who owed someone, be it a lender or creditor. And they were discontent. The Hebrew word means they were 
bitter of soul, dissatisfied with the way things were. You're like, wow, God, what an answer to David's prayer. A group of needy people and an anxious, angry family. <laughs> right? So when you think about the 400, what, what do you think about? Well, I go right to the 12. I mean, in the 12 that Jesus chose, you had a tax collector, you had a terrorist, you had a fisherman, and you had traders. That's not the obvious group. That, they are not the noticeable apparent people. In the same way, we read the scripture last week, Paul to Corinth, he had to tell that church, which was so puffed up on itself, think about what you were when you were called. Most of you were not wise, powerful, noble. God did this to shame the wise because the wise of the earth think much differently than the God of heaven. You getting the idea here? The, the wise of the earth think much differently than the God of heaven. So you can read in chapter 16, Samuel anoints David. And before that happened, you remember all of the sons, the brothers of David, they're just kind of like paraded before, before Samuel. And there's Eliab. And Samuel's like, that's the one, external, there he is, he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, he's the one. God's like, no, he's not. And then here they go, one by one, the little pageant. No, 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 no. And then, is there anyone left? Well, yeah, he's out there in the garden. And it's not like David wasn't handsome, the text says he was handsome. But what were we saying? The God of heaven, who would anoint David as king via Samuel, he looks at the heart. He does not look at the visible external stuff. So like people who were distressed or in debt or discontented, 400 men, you see? So in, in chapter 18, we read that the Lord was with David. It's a statement of grace. You, you never read that about Saul. So David did not earn this grace that God gave him. And here's what you have to do. Okay, how how is the grace of God, how did it function in David's life? Well, think here of the text. First, he has a family that's less than ideal. He's got 400 men with problems, with big issues. What is the writer, the original writer, is trying to tell their audience? Hey, don't despise small beginnings. Hey, look at the grace of God. God's not finished and yeah, it's less than ideal. And yeah, life was too much for them. And yeah, out of the most unlikely circumstances, small beginnings, 400 and a family, God's grace is being poured out over David. Our story is over. And as you read on, you, you know this, that weakness is actually a gain. Because when does David turn south, really south? Is when David becomes powerful. And when he becomes powerful, then David does a lot of foolish things. That takes us to our final point. And thank you for your patience. The completed message. How Christ completes the message. Right? So the first question was, what was the intended message to the original audience? That was most of it. But we're not finished with the text until we say, what difference does the life, death, resurrection of Jesus make in how we understand these verses? Well, first of all, the, God gives grace to the humble. God exalts the weak and humbles the proud. But wait a minute. Okay, wait a minute. How can any human being avoid the, the periodic, and let's be honest, frequent outbreak of pride and, and you know, chest-thumping strength that requires God to humble us? 
How, how can any human being be perfectly, perpetually humble and perfectly, perpetually weak before God's eyes? And how could any human being occupy the throne of David forever when human, human nature just like really brutally disqualifies us? How can any human being be weak enough and humble enough? How could I teach you that? How? So the lowly men, the 400 lowly men, they'll become part of David's mighty men eventually. But they're going to follow a sinful man. So what do we do? Well, what difference does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus make in how we understand these verses? Well, God solves the problems by what? By giving us his own son. And what what does his son do? He sets aside all his divine privileges. He sets aside all his glory. He becomes human, but not just any human, but a human who humbled himself more than any other human in the world. And he humbled himself perfectly. And he will be demeaned and treated, mistreated dreadfully by human beings. And unlike David, Jesus perfectly obeyed his father's will. Everything the father said, Jesus did. Even with that, obedience led to rejection, humiliation, and death. And because Jesus humbled himself in this way, there's no one like him. So the one, and here's the picture, who is all power, allowed himself to be overpowered by earthly rulers. He is now the one who has all authority over heaven and earth. And he has gone from being a victim of the tyrannical, sinful men and women, like, like these 400 men. He has gone from that to being the mighty king who exercises a righteous, humble, gentle of heart, powerful, eternal rule. And here's the thing, and, and we're just about done. Because of this, the weakest we can be is the safest place to be. Okay, what is the weakest we could be? The weakest we could be is to come to the place where we clearly recognize I am dead in my sins apart from Christ. That I cannot ever pay what I owe to God. It's too much. I am in debt, verse 2. Jesus must pay it. And Jesus at the cross has paid it. So, so life is often cruel and it's so hard and life wants too much from us. I feel like a slave here. I am much discontent with the life before me. I mean, if you were honest, there are times I hate being alive. But Jesus will help me see. Now, please listen. He will help me see that the infinitely better life, which is coming, is a real thing. So live with me, Jesus, with that life in mind. Remember Hebrews 12? For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross scorning its shame. That's our example. For the joy set before you, endure this life and all the battles it has. And in the same way God sets lonely people in families, God sets sinners, evil people, down and outers, debtors, discontent people, and the distressed into his forever family. And he does it by grace. And he gives them two great gifts. One, he gives them all of his perfection, all of his righteousness forever. That's one. And he gives them all the rights and privileges that go with his perfection forever. So you look at that text, and please just look down at your Bible. 
you look at that test and you ask yourself, what can you do? What can you do? What can you do, Christian, that Jesus Christ has not already done? And you remember how we said in the beginning about how we live our life through a story? We have to know his story so that we can rightly live out our story, which is really his story through us. Okay. That's it. Thank you for your attention. God bless you, and let's pray together. God and Father, help us to realize that maturity is realizing more and more till our last breath how our dependence, how, how dependent we are on Jesus. And maturity is, is growing dependence. It's so hard to understand because we, we want to be good people before you. We want to live aright before you. But God, the closer we get to the flame, the more we see our defects. Thank you that the gospel covers that. Thank you that in exchange for our sin, you give us the very holiness of Jesus Christ. Get that into our heads. Help us to surrender to the sheer beauty and magnitude of grace. And help us, God, please help us as a people to see Jesus every time we open your book. Finally, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in his church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.